The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 27, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 14 this morning, which is the entire chapter. This is a Psalm of David, the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 44. We'll be reading through verse 50 this morning. Many of you will notice that that is a longer text than I had originally intended to preach on. Um, I had originally intended to preach on the kingdom of God being like a hidden treasure in the pearl of great price separately, and then to preach on Christ being a dragnet so that I could give a fuller amount of attention to each of those. But as I began to study the first two parables, I noticed that a number of commentators were reading them as though they were the only thing that God was saying about the kingdom of God. In fact, they were reading them in a way that would make no sense of the next parable. And so I thought it would be better for us to look at these three parables together as Jesus, in fact, has given them to us. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 44, the word of our God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. One of the most common mistakes in doing theology is to think that a matter must be either or, when in fact it is both and. Uh, that is so important, I'm going to say that again. One of the most common mistakes that Christians make in doing theology is to think that a matter must be either or, when in fact it is both and. Let me give you an illustration. Is the Christian life like a competitive race that you need to train for with discipline and then run with everything that you have? Or is the Christian life about resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting the sovereign work of God, knowing that he who has begun a good work in you will surely bring it to completion? Well, when I ask the question like that, the answer is obvious. That word or has got to be cut out of the sentence. Right? The, the whole Bible, and Paul in particular, teaches both of these things. The Christian life is both about resting in God's sovereign grace and also out of that sovereign grace exerting ourselves as true disciples. The challenge for us is that it is easy to latch on to just one aspect of the Christian life and to consider all of God's word through the lens of that one aspect and then therefore cut off the parts that don't fit. If the Christian life is entirely about our efforts and activity, then the lens will rule out the comfort that we gain from knowing that our Father in heaven is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. Uh, that lens will cause us to grow proud in our own spiritual achievements rather than seeing them as the outgrowing of God's grace in our lives. And indeed, it will cause us to rob the Lord of the glory that is due his name. On the other hand, if the entirety of the Christian life is about resting in God's sovereign grace, then anytime people talk about exerting themselves, pursuing holiness, seeking with diligence to live for the sake of the kingdom of God, well, that will sound like legalism and works righteousness. It is only when we take all the lenses that God gives us and see them all together that we see what God is teaching us in its proper balance. Things only come into focus when we realize that the Christian life is about both, not either or, but both and. Uh, this morning's passage is about the kingdom of God. Three times Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like in verse 44, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure. 
In verse 46, he says the kingdom of God is like a pearl, a pearl of extraordinary value. And in verse 47, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a fishing net. Beloved, it is like all of those things at the same time. And therefore, we ought to look at the kingdom of God through all three lenses and see how they fit together. These are not three competing ways to understand what the kingdom of God is like, nor are they a multiple choice list where we simply pick out the one that strikes our fancy. That's a very common thing in America, you know. I mean, how often do you talk to somebody and they'll say something like, my God is, and then they give you their own designer view of God as though they can just recraft them any way that they want. But that's not true. God is who he is, lifted up and exalted, and we want to see him in all his glory, and we want to grasp everything that he is doing in bringing the kingdom of God in through his son, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is about all three of these images at the same time. They all fit together. Uh, we're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, priceless treasure. Second, a necessary response. Third, Christ, the fisherman. And fourth, a solemn warning. Let me give those to you once again. First, a priceless treasure. Second, a necessary response. Third, Christ the fisherman. And fourth, a solemn warning. So what is the kingdom of God like? Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Where do you store your valuables? I guess that depends on how old you are. Uh, if you're young enough, you might store your most valuable possessions in a piggy bank and under your bed. But as you get older, uh, that's really not going to work out so well. If you get to be middle age or on the other side of middle age as I have, uh, most of your wealth is going to be either in your house or in digital storage, unless you own your own business. Right? Business owners, a lot of your wealth is tied up in your business. But if you don't own your own business, most of your wealth is in your house, or the record of it at least, is stored digitally. That is, your wealth is in mutual funds and 401ks and bank accounts and maybe individual shares of companies, all of which are simply stored digitally. You know, just a generation ago, that wasn't the case. And so people tended to store things in safes if they were really valuable or safe deposit boxes. And we still use those. I mean, safes and safe deposit boxes are still very, very common. But if you go back to the first century, they didn't have any of those things. So if you're in the first century living around the Mediterranean world, like the people in Israel were, where would you store those things that were really valuable so that no one else would get their hands on them? Well, it turns out that they only had really two options. One of the options that was actually very popular was to store wealth at the local religious temple or shrine. And the reason for that was pretty obvious in one sense. Uh, if you stored things at the local temple, there were always priests on duty, right? So people wouldn't necessarily want to sneak in while all those priests were working there. And the second thing was, at least the local people would be concerned 
that if they robbed the temple, the gods who were supposedly being worshipped there, they might have wrath on those robbers. And so the fear of those gods would help protect your wealth. But it turns out that still really didn't work very well. There are two really obvious problems that everyone in the first century grasped about storing your silver and your gold at the local religious shrine. First of all, everybody knew that's where the money was. Uh, you might know that one time Willie Sutton, the notorious bank robber, was asked, why do you rob banks? And he replied, because that's where the money is. Well, in the first century, everybody knew there was a lot of money, that is silver and gold and precious gems and so on, that would be stored up in temples. But the second reality is one that's a little hard for us to grasp as modern Americans. Um, you know, America's been in various wars my whole lifetime. I served in the military, I went overseas, and so on. But America has never been invaded in our lifetime, right? We don't have to worry about getting overrun. But in the first century, war was just a normal part of life. In a way, that's hard for us to grasp. In uh, sometimes in uh, ancient history, wars and battles took place literally every single year. Uh, consider... Um, the opening words of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Listen carefully to this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. In the spring, the time of year when kings go out to battle. Try to imagine living at a time when every spring there's a fresh war. Sometimes you'd win, sometimes you'd lose. And if you lose, the invading army who's running through your land, they don't care about the temple, right? I mean, after all, their gods conquered your gods. So they would strip the temple clean of everything in it, everything of value that they could bring home. And it happened over and over and over again. So if you're a smart person and you're all smart people, what do you do? Where do you hide your wealth when war is going to happen? And it's going to happen a lot. What people did is they went out in the field, they dug a hole, and they buried it. And they trusted the fact that only they and maybe a few other people, their closest relatives, knew where that wealth was, meant that no matter how much things got ravaged, they could go back a year or two later and dig it up and they would not be completely broke. That's the background of this picture. Uh, by the way, um, uh, just this past October, uh, an astonishing find of coins was um, discovered in England. In um, Eastern England, several thousand coins dating from before the time of Christ up to 235 AD were found, including silver denarii, you remember denarius from the New Testament. It's a, it's a silver coin that's worth one day's wage. Thousands of them were found, and they were simply found under some hedges that had been there. And they'd been there for, what, 1,700 years. Well, we don't know what happened to the people whose treasure it was, why they died, why they didn't come back and get the treasure, why no one knew about it. But for some 1,700 years, this was this extraordinary treasure there, hidden in the ground, until someone came upon it. And they were actually seeking for it. Um, but, you know, 10 years earlier, uh, 10 years before now, in, in 2013, a couple in Sierra Nevada in California um, almost completely accidentally discovered that there was 10 
million dollars of gold coins on their own property. Isn't that astonishing? Uh, by their own account, they had lived on this property, walked around this property for many years. They'd walked around the spot where this gold was hidden. And then when they finally thought there was something not quite right there, and they dug in and searched into the ground, they found a $10 million treasure. Uh, that kind of wealth could change your life. Well, what do you do if suddenly you end up discovering 10 years' worth of wages or $10 million worth of wealth? I think it's going to change what you're focusing on a great deal, at least for the moment. Jesus is saying, that is the way that many people encounter the kingdom of God. They are not looking for it, right? The, the people in this, this first parable aren't looking for the treasure. They stumble upon it, as it were, by God's grace. And Jesus is saying, many people encounter the kingdom of God like that. They're not looking for the kingdom of God, and suddenly they get a glimpse of the kingdom, or perhaps more particularly a glimpse of the king, and they see he's the priceless treasure. And they sell everything they have so that they can have him and be part of it. Uh, those who do this are exceedingly wise, for the kingdom of God is priceless. Uh, Malcolm Muggridge was one of the 20th century's most famous public intellectuals. He was a big deal. Uh, but he was also someone who understood with great clarity what is really important in life. Muggridge writes, and this is in his old age, I may suppose, regard myself, or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily enough qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and with a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That is fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who they are or what they have done. Have you discovered that treasure? Have you been willing to forsake everything else in order to have it? Verses 45 and 46 Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, the second parable is a lot like the first, right? In both cases, there's this extraordinary treasure that is found, and in both cases, the person who finds it gives up everything else they have to gain this one thing. 
There is a difference here. In the first parable, the person isn't looking for the treasure. Uh, You might think of an analogy this way. Undoubtedly, there have been countless multitudes of young men who showed up at a Bible study or a church because they were pursuing a young woman. They weren't looking for Jesus. But then they showed up at the Bible study or the church and they heard the gospel and Jesus found them. And having seen this this extraordinary treasure, this pearl of great price, they reoriented their entire lives around Jesus. He wasn't what they were seeking. But here in the second parable, we're told of a merchant who is. Right? He's seeking after these fine pearls, and then he finds the one of an estimable value. Now, some commentators say these must be people who are seeking after true meaning in life, even seeking after God. But I want to say that can't be right. Um, Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, rightly points out that we make a mistake in our own thinking. When we see people seeking after things that we know as Christians only God can give for them, we wrongly conclude they're seeking after God. When in fact they're just seeking after those things. They're not seeking God at all. Natural man, apart from God's prior grace, runs from God. No natural man apart from God's grace has ever sought after God, ever. So who is Jesus talking about? Well, he might actually not be talking about anybody. I mean, parables, you got to be careful. Not all the details always matter. And so Jesus might be saying, look, the point of his parable is the treasure, the pearl, me, I'm of inestimable value, and you need to be willing to abandon everything else to lay hold of me. That that certainly is possible. But if Jesus intends that this merchant seeking after fine pearls represents someone spiritually, I think that can work as well. For one thing, we have to remember that Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom in the midst of God's chosen people. There are already Jewish people who truly believe in the Lord who are looking for the kingdom of God to come. They don't know quite what it looks like, but they're seeking it out. These fine spiritual pearls, as it were. Uh, Think of Simeon. You know, Simeon was an elderly saint when we meet him in the Gospel according to Luke. He was an elderly saint who lived in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's birth. And Luke tells us that this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. See, Simeon already knew the Lord. Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit, seeking the coming of the kingdom, seeking the coming of the king. But when he saw him, it actually changed his life again, filled him with joy so that nothing else mattered. 
Right? Let me depart in peace, Lord. I have seen your salvation in the face of this child. For Simeon, the person of Jesus was ultimately the only thing that mattered. Well, are there still people like Simeon today? In, in one sense, the answer was no. Right? Jesus coming in his incarnation was unique, and Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit for this distinct mission as a prophet. But I think we can see an analogy to this. Um, there are covenant children who grow up in the church, some of whom, by God's grace, are believers from very, very young. And therefore, while they trust in Jesus, they take the things of God somewhat for granted. And then somewhere along their journey, they get a fuller, more brilliant picture of Jesus and all his glory. And once again, they take all those other things that they started to focus on, they let them go, that they may have Christ and Christ alone. I think that's a, a fair connection to today, although it is possible, as I say, that Jesus didn't intend any spiritual meaning for the merchant at all. What is the kingdom of God like? Whether we are talking about a faithful covenant child who is seeking the things of God, or someone who just by God's grace stumbles across the kingdom, in both cases the kingdom is so valuable that they joyfully surrender everything else that they might gain Christ. Beloved, the kingdom and the king are that valuable to us. This leads to the second main heading. Abandoning everything else for the sake of Jesus Christ is our necessary response. Please don't miss that word that I'm emphasizing. It is our necessary response to seeing who Christ is. In both of these parables, the person sells everything that he has for the sake of this newfound treasure, and he does so joyfully because there is no comparison between what he is giving up and what he is gaining. Does that describe you? Is that how you place Christ among the treasures in your own life? Does that describe you? Now, we don't actually literally have to give up everything that we have. But in principle, we do. In fact, in principle, it shouldn't really feel like we're giving up very much. Because the infinite value of Christ makes all those things pale by comparison. Now, of course, Jesus is not teaching us that we can somehow purchase salvation by giving up everything. Knowing, trusting, and being everything that you are called to be alive in Jesus Christ is by God's grace from beginning to end. But what Jesus is telling us is that the kingdom of God must take absolute priority over everything else in our lives. Now the truth is, for most of us, there are many things that are valuable in our lives. Many things. And for the most part, we don't like put them in order. Right? That, that's fine, for the most part. But I want to encourage you that from time to time it's important that you actually go back and say, which of these is really most important? Otherwise, you're going to let the world push in urgent things into your life and squeeze out that which is most important. In fact, you might become so entangled in those little promises that you start putting things above the kingdom of God. Well, how do we do that? Uh, here's a question you can ask. This question 
It's an intriguing question. It comes from R.C. Sproul. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, if um, your house is on fire, and the firemen tell you you got five minutes, then the house is gone. You can go into the house and you can rescue just a few things, two, three items in your house, and then everything else is going to burn up. What do you get? Go ahead and ask yourself that question. If everything you possess is going to get burned up, you can only save two or three items. What do you choose to save? And R.C. answers, I know exactly what I would get. I would get some rare books and some paintings that I own and some letters from, that my dad wrote to me during World War II. Why would I get those things? Because they cannot be replaced. They can never be replaced. What about you? What would you make sure you hung on to knowing that everything else is going to burn? Do you have in mind two or three things that are really precious to you? Beloved, Jesus Christ is infinitely more valuable than whatever you're thinking about. Infinitely more valuable. And here's a bit of the punchline. Those things are going to burn. Every last one of them. Every last one of those things that we value in this world that are not part of the kingdom of God are going to be burned up with fire. Jesus Christ is the pearl which is more valuable than the entire universe. If you prioritize Jesus Christ above everything else, then you will have everything that truly matters for all eternity, even when everything else burns. But if clinging to other things keeps you from Jesus, well, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? See, Jesus is the unique, priceless treasure. Therefore, we must be willing to count everything else's loss in order to gain Jesus Christ. Now, the language in these two short parables is rather daring because all this emphasis on us giving up everything we have might make us think that the decisive thing in salvation is us, right? And if you're here this morning as someone who's a true and genuine Christian, it's because you tried harder than your neighbor. Well, if you've been here for more than a week, or you just paid attention to the assurance of pardon this morning, you realize that's not true. It's not dependent upon how valiantly we seek it, but upon God's grace in seeking us. So Jesus tells us one more parable. Verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price focus on the exceeding value of the kingdom and the king. And they do focus on the necessity of us responding to that by being willing to surrender everything else that Jesus Christ would be ours. 
The parable of the dragnet makes clear that it is Jesus Christ who is doing the fishing. Right? It's Almighty God who throws the dragnet out and brings people into his church. Why are you here this morning? Well, you know, in secondary causes, there's lots of things. You're here visiting relatives. You're here because of tradition. You're covenant children. You're here because your parents make you come here every week. Praise be to God that they do. Right? There's lots of secondary causes. But you know why you're part of Merrimack Valley Presbyterian Church? God did it. God in his sovereign grace has drawn you as a people into his visible church. The reason why anyone discovers the unspeakable riches of Christ is because of God's prior grace in our lives. Nobody ever comes to Jesus unless the Father brings him. And yet this parable brings us a solemn warning. Please notice that this is a parable not about the world, it's a parable about the kingdom of God. This fishnet is a representation of the kingdom of God, but is the church, and in the church there's not only good fish, there's bad fish that get thrown away. See, part of what Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God is ultimately there will be a separation between those who are truly his disciples and those who are just going along for the ride. And that separation will not be enjoyable for the second group. On that last day, the Lord will send forth his holy angels, and they will separate the wheat from the chaff. By the way, a parable you might want to read along with this one. Or in the image of this parable, they will separate the good fish from the bad, representing the separation of the righteous, those who trust in Christ, from the wicked. And as for those evildoers, who though privileged to be part of Christ's church, but who never sought first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, well, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, you may be wondering how that's even possible. I mean, think about hidden treasures, right? I mean, who comes along on a treasure and kicks it, sees a treasure, and just keeps going on like nothing happened? Well, you know, with those treasures that pass away, that is silver and gold, people probably never do that. Right? Nobody stumbles on a bunch of gold coins and just goes on his own way. But sadly, people do that all the time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They encounter the true gospel. They are told the truth about Jesus. He's held out before them as an extraordinary savior. And then they just go on with life as though nothing had happened. But that's not these people. These are people who come into the church. So how is it that people can come to church week after week, talk about a true church, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and never lay hold of the pearl of great price? Well, I think the reason how people can do that is because they come to church seeking to use God rather than seeking to worship and adore him. That is, they see God in terms of therapeutic deism as what can I get out of it? How can my life be slightly improved? Or maybe it is because they're looking after trying to find a godly wife or at least a nice wife, not thinking necessarily of godliness. In the modern West, I think one of the biggest issues is that people inside the church 
frequently seek to use God rather than to worship him. Now, as sinners, it's easy to feel the attraction of any organization that puts us at the center and treats us as though we are the pearl of great price, that you are the most important thing in the entire universe, right? We, we feel that attraction. It's nice to be the center of attention from time to time. If you're married, I hope your husband or wife does that for you, right? Your parents do that for you as children. But we ought not to disdain the one institution that tells us the truth that we're not. See, beloved, you and I are not the pearl of great price. And the church in North America is plagued right now with churches that tell people that they are. By all means, the church should be marked out by love rather than by a spirit of condemnation. And I say honestly to you, thankfully, this church is. Nevertheless, harming people in the way that they prefer to be harmed is not love, no matter how popular that has become in America. Affirming people for going their own way because that's what they want to hear is not a loving thing to do if the way they're going is a path of destruction. Harming people in the way that they prefer to be harmed is not love, and a great deal of harm has been done to Christians in America by churches that treat members and visitors like customers who are to be flattered rather than as people created in the image of God who are to be discipled. And I, I could tell you, I get emails and stuff all the time from people about how you could grow your church by treating you, the people of God, like your customers who need to be puffed up. Beloved, we are not going to do that in this congregation. You and I are not the pearl of great price. Jesus is. Therefore, you do not need the warm embrace of therapeutic deism. What you need to do is see Jesus in his glory to recognize that he is of what's value and to be drawn out of yourself to worship him with everything that you have. What you need most is to joyfully count all things as loss in order to gain Christ and to be found in him. Now, if you have not yet embraced Jesus is the priceless treasure above everything else. I am sorely tempted to call you right here to flee to him. And honestly, that would be a perfectly right thing to do. But see, if this is you, your problem is not that you are not running. Your problem is that you are not seeing. Right? You're not seeing Jesus for who he is. And so I plead with you to lift your eyes. Stop looking at yourself as though you are the center of the universe, as though you are the pearl of great price, and pour over the gospel according to Matthew or any of the other gospels this week. Pour over them asking just one question. Who is this Jesus? That's the most important question you will ever ask yourself. Stop looking at yourself. Look at him and say, who is this Jesus for you will joyfully surrender everything to lay hold of this Jesus if you simply see him as he is. Amen.